back yes holiday time is over listeners or if you're like me it never happened um unlike someone else who contributes to this podcast and seems to be on holiday all the time i will mention no names firstly self-care is very important and secondly sorry who is this i'm dominic and uh i live in amsterdam and we make a podcast together remember oh yeah i do remember hello everyone hello europe it feels like it's been forever this is katie in paris where i am almost completely on my own literally everyone else has just packed off to the beach in the countryside and gone on holiday but uh, as dominic politely pointed out i have already had my holiday now i'm back at work and it sucks because you haven't been on holiday what have you been doing i have had a nice few weeks if i'm honest uh, i've been performing with a collective who make performances kind of on the border of art philosophy and science um they're called the walden collective and i made some noises above one of their shows it was all about energy and warmth so i learned a lot about coal um but yeah for those of you who think my career as a singer is glamorous there were a few instances during this project that would have proved you all wrong for example when we were doing one of our shows in the middle of a wood um, a woods a forest we don't say a wood the woods in the middle of the woods uh, the show had just started and the audience all came in and everyone was facing us and we were like doing a bit of singing there was some talking going on and one of the members of the audience she realized that she needed to do a wee so she just like stepped a few steps into the bushes turned around faced us so she could carry on watching the performance and went and yeah did her wee right there so none of the audience <laughs> could see her but all of us performers could and had to like <laughs> carry on as if nothing had happened so yeah i mean i kind of respect her for not wanting to miss any of the performance i love this woman she is a hero she is a hero she could have gone like a few steps further into the woods I would have appreciated that personally. So she was just kind of eyeballing you and weeing at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. Love it. Has that happened to you at work lately, Katie? Um, Not recently, no. I've just been kind of in the office, the extremely air-conditioned office. Uh, as we're going to get onto later, there's a massive heat wave going on across Europe right now, uh, including Paris, where it is 37 degrees Celsius, 98.6 in Fahrenheit. I looked that up for our American listeners on the other side of the pond. That's nothing. It's been 39 in Amsterdam. I couldn't sleep last night because it was the hottest night ever recorded in the Netherlands. Everywhere is super hot. So we're going to be talking to my friend and colleague, Patrick Gailey, who is our incoming science and environment correspondent at AFP. Uh, and he's the perfect person to be talking to about this because he's, apart from having this scientific background, he has just come back from Greece where they've had these awful, awful wildfires there. So that will be coming up a little bit later. What else is happening this week? Well, we are also going to have a look at the dramatic resignation of Mesut Özil, the Turkish-German footballer and Arsenal midfielder who resigned on Twitter from international football after Germany didn't do very well in the World Cup and he was scapegoated in a way that he thinks was disrespectful and racist. But first, I think we shouldn't do good week, bad week this week. I think we should do good month, bad month because we've been away for the whole of the month and I think there are two pretty obvious candidates for good and bad. Yeah, but can we still play the jingle? Sure, go on then. Good week, bad week. 
Who has it been a good month for? It has kind of, until the last few days, been a very good month for Vladimir Putin. Yay! Uh, let's start with the light stuff. The Russian football team did better than expected in the World Cup. They made it to the quarterfinals and played pretty well. Blah, blah, blah. Football, football, football. Also to do with football, Russia hosted the World Cup without any major crises. And they managed to keep a facade that the country is kind of strong and stable without much oxygen being taken up by protesters of this questionable regime. There were, of course, many brave protesters, such as the members of the famous punk activist group Pussy Riot, who charged the pitch during the final. But eventually, everything went pretty smoothly for the Russian establishment, considering that they had been accused of poisoning British citizens on British soil, one of whom sadly died recently. They interfered in the US elections, as we all now know, apart from Donald Trump. (laughs) You almost wouldn't have known that there was anything the matter during the World Cup. So that all went well. And then he also managed to have a one-on-one with Trump, which was followed by that press conference in which Trump said that he believed Putin that there was no Russian interference in the US election. Oh, no, sorry. I mean, he did not believe Putin. He misspoke in the press conference. And I've remembered the uncorrected version. I'm sorry. Those words are very easy to confuse. I mean, we've all been there. Yes. Oh. So tricky. Anyway, he was, Putin was seen to have totally got the better of Trump. And Trump has been given the moniker of Putin's poodle, which was probably quite titillating for old Vlad. Um, Trump even described the European Union as a foe on the evening of his love-in with Putin. So that will have been very pleasing. Things have turned around slightly in the last week with uh, Trump agreeing to a trade deal with the EU, kind of keeping things closer to the status quo. But, you know, it won't be long before Trump comes and gives Vladimir Putin another cuddle and decides to side with him over his own intelligence services. I'm sure. After that kiss he got from Jean-Claude Juncker when they did this trade agreement this week, maybe we'll get a full-on smacker from Putin. Um, I was going to say, it's also been kind of a good summer for Putin in like broad strategic terms because it hasn't been a good summer for the EU. Just after we went on holiday, there was this massive row that broke out over migration and it felt pretty bad at points over the last six weeks. And that is exactly the kind of thing that I think has Putin rubbing his little hands with glee over. Has he got little hands as well? No, he's probably got quite strong, muscly judo hands. Ooh, I'm getting excited. We should move on. Yeah, please. Who's it been a bad month for, Katie? Well, uh, from one quite egotistical politician to another, it's been a pretty bad month for Emmanuel Macron, face of this podcast, although not with his consent. I do kind of feel a little bit sorry for poor Manu, like a really, really tiny amount, like 0.0001%, because um, August is supposed to be like a holiday month in France and pretty much the whole country just shuts down and goes to the beach. But this year, we're having a kind of midsummer political crisis over a scandal that's being called Binaligate, which sounds like a toothpaste brand, but it isn't. It's a pretty crazy story. So last week, Le Monde newspaper published a video showing Macron's, uh, basically his head of security, this guy called Alexandre Benalla. And the video showed him at a protest back in May. And in the video, he is like roughing up protesters. Uh, you see him hitting this guy at least twice, and you see him wrestling this young woman to the ground. And he's doing all this while wearing a police helmet, which is mad. It's it's like if like a really senior official at the White House was just spotted like randomly punching demonstrators while dressed up as a cop. And it turns out that Macron's office knew that all of this had happened, like the day after it happened. And all they did was suspend this guy for two weeks. It was kind of kept quiet. 
until last week when it all exploded because these videos of this incident went public. And it's caused a massive shockwave in French politics, especially because it's the summer and there's like nothing else to talk about apart from the Tour de France. So since then, there's been like a bunch of Macron's right-hand men dragged in front of Parliament to explain why they didn't report this guy to the police at the time. The guy in question, Benalla, he just says that he was trying to help out the cops and be helpful at the protest. Got a little bit carried away. And Macron himself has said it's just a storm in the teacup. He is really trying to downplay it. Uh, But his opponents aren't having it. And they've said that the way he's responded to this whole scandal, trying to minimize its importance, uh, is arrogant, which is something that you hear a lot from Macron's critics, that he kind of wishes he was a king rather than a president, really. And it does seem to have had an effect on his polling numbers, which were already rubbish. They hit a record low this week. 60% of the country has a bad opinion of him now. And all of this when the country's celebrating its World Cup win and it should be this really great honeymoon period for Macron. Um, It's kind of been a bit of a downer. I was wondering whether we should, out of respect, like take his face off our podcast because the angry Macron look has taken on quite a nasty turn now. That face did come out again this week quite a lot. Um, Some people have told us we should take the face down anyway just because it's like... Not very professional. Let us know what you think. Do you love the angry Macron head? Do you hate it? I'm in two minds. It's been bloody hot around here in Europe and the Northern Hemisphere. Like, it's just crazy. Sweden has experienced its hottest July in 260 years. In the countryside around Berlin, animals are having to be slaughtered because there's not enough grass to feed them. Torrential downpours and floods have been cropping up across the continent in between the drought. Did you already say it's been 30 degrees in the Arctic Circle? No, I didn't say that. You hadn't even got to that one. That's like terrifying. And there have, of course, been these awful, awful fires in Greece near Athens, uh, the deadliest fires in modern European history, at least 82 people dead. We kind of wanted to know whether this is part of a trend. So we've got the perfect person to talk to. Patrick Gailey, my friend and colleague, as mentioned. He's just come back from reporting on the fires in Athens. And he happens to be our incoming global science correspondent at AFP. So he knows a lot about why this is happening. And it just happens that he lives right across the road from me. So I'm going to pop over there right now. Jealous. You better not have beer. No, but he has got a really nice dog who I might put on the radio for a second. I'm on the other side of the road now, and I'm here with Patrick, but more importantly, Omi the dog. <coughs> Do you think that the current heat wave is caused by global warming? Yes. Anyway, we should probably talk to Patrick, who's like an actual human instead. Hi, Patrick. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming and speaking to us. Okay, so for the entire interview, you may or may not hear a, a dog <laughs> sort of licking. Uh, what, what is he licking exactly? Uh, it's frozen dog food. Very good for these hot summer days. So yeah, that that will be the soundtrack to this interview about all this crazy climate stuff that's been going on, especially in Greece, where Patrick, you've just been for the last few days. What was it like over there? Everyone is in shock and grieving, but that's generally giving way to anger now. The government is refusing to take any responsibility. It's blaming people who live there for living there. The residents are blaming the government for not having a cohesive evacuation plan it's the worst ever fires and greece is no stranger to forest fires you know they happen every year but these are the deadliest ever and um you've got to hope that the government and communities can do something about it so it doesn't ever happen again i see that there have been fingers being pointed all over the place at the moment and that some people are arguing that it was started by arson I mean, I imagine that no one really knows the answer to any of these questions yet. But uh, is there anything unique to that landscape as to like why it was so bad? 
Yeah, the government said last night it's got quite good evidence that about 12 or 15 fires were set simultaneously on Monday evening. It's not an uncommon tactic for people to sort of start a little fire on the edge of a small village with the hope of uh, getting the residents to evacuate from their homes and then going and stealing everything. We don't know. It's possible and it's not incredible that that could have happened. But in a way, I would argue that it doesn't really matter how the fires started. The point is they should never have been allowed to spread as quickly as they did. So in terms of local geography, it was a perfect storm of stuff. You've got a lot of homes built right in among pine forest. They're just like matchsticks. It's, it's been an incredibly hot summer. It was sort of 41 degrees on Monday over the weekend. So it's super dry. The other thing is that Greece in recent years has experienced more rainfall in the region than normal. So what you get is a cycle of really dry summers and then huge downpours, which in turn creates much more vegetation, which then grows and then gets dried out when the summer returns. So it seems in Mati and the areas around the coast, there was very little maintenance in terms of keeping the trees a safe distance away from the houses. There was very little in terms of a coordinated evacuation plan. No one knew what to do in case of the fire. And those who could literally spent the night, you know, up to their waist in the sea whilst the village burned. It does sound like there were loads of different things that humans could have done to make this less of an awful tragedy. Like watching this from elsewhere in Europe, you can't help seeing that there's these, all these crazy weather phenomenons happening everywhere. There's been these fires in Sweden and like Lapland, places like that. A very big question... Is this a climate change thing? What has that got to do with the whole thing? It's a controversial thing to link individual extreme weather events to climate change. What I think can be said with a degree of authority is that climate change is making extreme weather events more likely. The government of Greece sort of came out and said, look, there's nothing we could have done. This is climate change in action. And to an extent, that's credible. It's easy to look at the global picture right now. And, you know, there's there's a heat wave in Europe. There's fires blazing, as you said, in places where there shouldn't be fires. Since June the 20th, there's about 50 or so weather stations spread across the entire northern hemisphere that have registered record temperatures. And that's from, you know, Alaska all the way to Siberia. So the short answer is probably it is linked. What it means going forward is that we're going to have more droughts, more heat waves. And when you combine those two, as I explained earlier, you get more combustible material. We've lost 400,000 acres of forest at least this week. So it's clearly a phenomenon that's being exacerbated by climate change, if not directly caused by it. So essentially, we're doomed. (laughs) But are there any optimistic movements in the pipelines that like might strengthen international agreements on limiting climate change? It depends how you cut it, really, because there's a large body of evidence to suggest that we've already, two years ago, in fact, surpassed the carbon global carbon emissions that mean it's almost impossible for us to limit global temperature rises to under 1.5 or 2 degrees by the end of the century. Even if we stopped now, Even if all coal-powered fire stations and cars and all industry ceased, the amount of CO2 humans have already put into the atmosphere since 1950, which is really when, after the Second World War, which is when the capitalist industrial complex really took off and people started taking holidays and driving cars. And if you look at all these graphs, you know, global temperatures, stocks of fish, they're all correlated since then. The sort of trajectory is, is dizzying. 
There are global initiatives, but the problem is the very nature of climate change and global warming is that it's global and it requires the kind of framework that doesn't currently exist. There's the Paris Climate Agreement, which Trump has famously said America is pulling out of. If there is any sort of cause for optimism, it's this somewhat hazy and, I would say, idealistic idea that humans have always adapted. They've always developed technologies that help them manage their environments. And, you know, we've got things like carbon capture initiatives. We've got people that are cutting down on, you know, air travel and this kind of stuff, clean energy. It's water on Mars now, so we can all just go there, no? That might end up being a good option, looking at some of the worst case scenario climate projections. So I am quite pessimistic about it all. Right. Thanks, Patrick. We're all super depressed now. You're welcome back anytime. But, you know, in contrast to um, probably the world's most powerful climate skeptic in the White House, uh, here in Europe, we've got Emmanuel Macron, who has been running around over the past year or so saying, oh, I'm Mr. Green and I want to find solutions to all this stuff. And he sees himself as like this kind of figurehead for the movement that's still pushing for that stuff. Has Europe actually been doing anything since Trump said that he was pulling out that's useful in terms of getting stuff done on climate change. This idea that France and Britain are going to ban all greenhouse gas producing cars by 2040 or something like that. These initiatives are good. And yeah, I think it's a good idea to organise coordination among member states to try and limit the increases in their carbon emissions. But again, the nature of the problem is global. So Europe could be angelic when it comes to climate emissions which it's not but that would be mitigated if countries like america and emerging markets like china and india who are the three biggest emitters of uh, greenhouse gases you know don't follow suit everyone needs to play by the same set of rules you know and and europe may be abiding by the rules which have been agreed but that on its own is not enough That was Patrick Gailey. He is one of the angriest people on Twitter. He has been whacking out extremely good and depressing tweets about climate change over recent days and they are set to continue, I think, as he takes on his new job. I'm not making it sound like you should follow him, but you really, really should. At Patrick Gailey is his handle on Twitter. We will put a link in our show notes. We're going to take a northwesterly turn now, go to Germany, where there's been this massive debate over the past week over one of the country's biggest football stars, Mesut Özil. He plays for Arsenal. He is of Turkish origin. His parents immigrated to Germany from Turkey and he quit the national team about a week ago. And he quit because of what he said was racist behaviour by the National Football Association. He posted this very long Twitter post resigning from the national team in which he said, I'm German when we win, but I'm an immigrant when we lose. And it sparked this massive soul searching in Germany. Ozil had been seen as this like symbol of modern, diverse Germany, like very tolerant, where people from immigrant backgrounds could become national heroes. But in recent weeks, Ozil had come under a lot of criticism over this picture he had taken with Mr. Erdogan, the Turkish president. People saying, how can he have his picture taken with this incredibly authoritarian leader who has literally like locked up thousands of people suspected of being his opponents? And he's had them suspended from their jobs and he's had them sacked and he's had them jailed. And that's true. He argued that it would have been completely disrespectful of him to the country that his parents came from if he'd refused to meet the president of Turkey. Um, And he said that people had used criticism of this picture of Erdogan basically as a cover for expressing underlying racist sentiment towards him as someone who is proud of his Turkish identity, who's proud of being Muslim. Yeah, and he also said that he was not posing with Erdogan to support the Turkish president, but 
to kind of support the office of the Turkish presidency and Turkey in general. I can kind of understand that. And I think he's been treated terribly by the media and by the German Football Association, by his accounts anyway. But I do think maybe there's something to be said that like by posing with the president, you even if it's a diplomatic thing and yeah, okay, Theresa May also posed with Erdogan when he comes to London. Still, it, it happened just before an election. So it ended up being quite a PR coup for Erdogan to pose with this very successful young Turkish German footballer. But then again, I can imagine I would also stand if Theresa May invited me or if I did a concert for Theresa May. You wish. I could imagine having a photo opportunity with them afterwards and not really thinking, yeah, well, I don't like this person, but it's my country. Haven't you sung for like the Queen or something? Yeah, I've sung for the Queen a few times, darling. (laughs) Sorry. Um, So sorry. Um, Going back to Ozil, though, the thing that is less questionable is the fact that like Ozil got really heavily blamed for Germany losing the World Cup. Certainly the far right AFD really laid into him and like singled him out for the team losing. They were like, it's his fault. Blame him. And that exposed this quite kind of ugly side of this whole question over whether certainly people on the far right see this massive community, this massive Turkish German community, which is like three million people, um, whether they see them as fully German or not. For people outside Europe, maybe you don't realize this, but yeah, this is this is huge community, Turkish German community. A lot of them descended from parents and grandparents who came as migrant workers back in the 60s and 70s and ended up staying. And uh, yeah, it's created these really complicated questions around identity. America is not the only place that can do identity politics. I mean, I also kind of want us to talk about how it has been uh, mirrored in the way that France has responded to the World Cup win, the whole Trevor Noah French-African row. It's quite similar, actually. Massive debate happening in France at the same time. It, it does weirdly mirror over this whole idea of like whether you can be French and something else at the same time. The French ambassador to the US described it as hyphenated identities, which I think is a a good way of putting it. And he was like, you can't, you can't have that in France. It's not a thing. Do listen back to our episode with uh, Rocaille Diallo, by the way, the French anti-racism activist for more on France's very complicated relationship with race and identity. I think that the French situation is like really super specific to France, uh, the whole logic behind it. But um, it is interesting how these debates are all kind of coming out right now in different places. Um, So to tease out some of these very complicated questions, uh, we have on the line a friend of a friend, actually, Dijelay. She teaches business at the International School in Berlin. She's actually Turkish-Canadian. She's lived in Germany for 11 years. Uh, She lived in Canada before that, which is how she ended up being half Canadian. And she's going to talk us through how she felt about this whole football row. Uh, to me, actually, he did the right thing to quit with the national you know, team of Germany. I mean, he didn't play well, I guess, but he was kind of singled out, I felt. He felt German, but because Germans are not accepting him as a German. At the moment, I don't know if he still feels like he's a German. Do you think Ozil was slightly naive in his decision to pose with Erdogan? I think there's no doubt that he was treated badly after it happened, but surely he must have been aware of the fact that it would have caused some kind of backlash in Germany, especially just before the election. You know, I don't know if a soccer player would think about the election, you know, giving a pose like that. I mean, I was thinking and I talked to, uh, you know, a friend, German friend, and I said, if 
Erdogan would call me, you know, if he would come to Berlin and call me, what would I do? And I am like definitely not a supporter. I am Kurdish descendant. Uh, I would go, I guess, myself. But you see, I mean, in Germany, I feel like, you know, the Turks are living in their own communities and ghettos and, you know, even in their social life. Um, they're very much like integrated within, you know, their own community, but not the German community that much. So there is a Turkish identity there. I mean, when you say, did you say that um, the Turkish community in Germany feels quite isolated, feels quite ghettoized? Why is that the case? Do you think it's because like white Germans aren't that welcoming? Or is it like a two-way thing? Why do you think it is? I guess two ways. I mean, both societies not matching that much. But I mean, myself, for example, I am living there as a Turkish Canadian. When I was living in Dusseldorf, I totally just like felt that I'm a foreigner. I could never be integrated to German, you know, groups, even in the international school. I mean, German friends, teachers were just like in their own groups and the rest we were together, like American, Mexican and so on and other teachers. You know, I don't know if this is like a, you know, cultural thing or this is how they see the foreigners, but particularly being, you know, Turkish, whenever any German, when they see the Canadian, they were very, like, friendly. They are very helpful, you know, as soon as they see the Canadian passport. But as soon as they see the Turkish part, it changes. So, but Berlin is a little different. So um, there I feel more, you know, I can integrate a, a bit. And, but still... I guess this is the case in Germany. To be integrated to the society is very difficult. Do you feel like things have got worse in the last 11 years since you've been living in Germany? Statistically, things have got worse in terms of racism, but has that been noticeable? There is a right, like, you know, right-wing move. But at the same time, I need to recognise that, you know, Germans... They are actually protesting against uh, Pegida and, you know, this, you know, right wing. So it's very difficult to generalize, not all the Germans, of course, but there is a big issue. I feel like understanding that they need to change their position towards the integrate, you know, the foreigners. Have you ever faced kind of active discrimination in Germany or is it more that it's just it's hard to feel accepted? Um, no, I myself, you know, didn't feel except a couple of incidents, in the, like the doctors, for example. Um, what happened at the doctors? I chose actually the doctor because she was, um, you know, speaking English, and, and and because I am always going there with my Canadian passport. And then she said that here that I'm not a Canadian, mm. and um, I said no, I'm Canadian. And then she said your name is not Canadian. And uh, she said that I am living in Germany, so I need to speak German. So she was discriminating, I've, I believe. I mean, because I knew that she was talking English with my friend. And then I heard a lot from the Turkish students in uh, the international schools. Like the families are sending to international schools because of for their kids not to be discriminated in German schools, kind of. Having the Canadian passport, it seems like it must feel like you sometimes have to sh prove to people that you're not just Turkish in order to be accepted. And is that how you experience it then, that you sometimes feel like you want to prove you're, that you're Canadian as well so that it's everything's okay? Yes, 
I mean, that is a nice shield in a way. And um, interesting enough, like my uh, daughter was here and we were talking with her when we moved here. One day she came to me and she said, like, you know, mom, I'm Canadian, right? And I said, just, you know, what, you know, whatever you feel. If you feel you're Canadian, why, why did you say that? Because they're calling me Turk. But I don't feel like Turkish because she never lived in Turkey. And then 10 years passed and she was here yesterday and I said, how do you feel? Like, you know, and then she said, I feel Turkish. And I said, what made you feel Turkish now? You still never lived in Turkey other than the holidays. And she said, Germany made me feel Turkish. Mm-hmm. But I also need to add, among the Turks, she is also put in a position like you are Kurdish. So, you know. We had a guest on the show a few weeks back who said that German Turkish people often feel like they live between two communities. Like when they're in Germany, they're considered Turkish. And then when they go back to Turkey, they feel German. Do you have friends who feel like that? Yes. I mean, this is the case, actually. That is the sad case for people who are living in Germany. So whenever they come to Turkey, they are seen as banks and, you know, uh, euros in pockets and that's it. So just they are not also accepted in this community as well in Turkey. I mean, you know, they are in between. That's a very good, actually, description of that. Before all this massive row broke out, Ozil was kind of a national hero. Are you hopeful that people like him will kind of increasingly break ground and become like a part of German culture and be held up as heroes and that maybe eventually there'll be a better model of integration in Germany or... Are you worried that things are going to carry on with like the Turkish German community feeling quite isolated and ghettoized? I have the feeling that they're going to close more to in their own, you know, um, circle. That is very sad. But on the other hand, I am thinking that this is a very good opportunity for the German uh, society to talk about this issue because they need to work on that. After our apocalyptic chat with Patrick earlier, we really need a happy ending. And this week, I'm going to talk about an individual case in which the heatwave has been very special and positive, if disturbing. Let's head to the Botanical Garden in Leiden. A lovely city in South Holland, uh, the Hortus Botanicus in Leiden, is the oldest botanical garden in the Netherlands, and it dates back to 1590. Obviously, the heatwave has been very mixed for plants across Europe, um, and lots of them have been very, very unhappy. But it has led to the blossoming of a plant that has never flowered in all the 60 years it was sitting in this botanical garden in Leiden. It is a plant called the Agave Americana, and it is usually at home in Central America. All four of Leiden's Agave Americanas have gone into bloom. The plant is used in the production of mezcal, and it's really beautiful. So I will post a picture on our Facebook, even if it's indicative of a climate apocalypse. (laughs) At least it looks like fierce, you know? I like how you look for joy, even when like the world is literally burning around us, Dominic. That's the spirit. We'll never give up. That was our first episode back. I think we just about managed how to do the talking. Well done, Dominic. Next time, I promise I will have had more sleep and I won't say as many silly things. More good words. Thomas won't like this. He will say, this is my husband, Thomas. He'll, he always says we're too self-deprecating. And I say it's 
key to our British identity, so he needs to get over it. We don't really have a national identity beyond being self-deprecating, so if you take that away from us, we have nothing. Um, I'm a little bit worried that the entire ensemble of our listeners has just disappeared while we've been gone, so please let us know that you're still there. Say hello to us on the internet. Uh, We are on Facebook and Twitter, at Europeans Podcast, and on Instagram, where I think we're going to have a bit of an overhaul. I had this idea. I want us to start posting your pictures of beautiful or maybe less beautiful places around Europe. That's a very nice idea, Katie. But I think we should make it into a competition. So we're looking for the most beautiful and the most horrible corners of Europe. Oh, yes. And we will only post the best and the worst. That is a great shout. Um, Sorry, also, I've just realized I said our Twitter handle wrong. We've been away too long. We're not Europeans podcast. We're at Europeans pod. Sorry, everyone. Apology accepted. Our Instagram, however, is Europeans podcast. And you can always send us an email, europeanspodcast at gmail.com. As we haven't been around for a while, we should definitely thank our one-man jingle factory, Jim Barn, who I'm hoping will get us a few new jingles for this new season. I like how you're announcing that we've just made him do loads of extra work live on air. Yeah, it's not like we've even like brought any new segment or anything. So Jim, by the way, recently won a prize for his musical writing. So I don't even know if he's got time. He's a lot more in demand than we are, frankly. Oh, speak for yourself. I've been very busy, unlike you, on holiday all the time. Yeah, so We will be back next week on Tuesday as normal. We're not going to disappear again for a while, we promise, so you're okay. We are never leaving. We are bringing this podcast to you weekly for the rest of all time. Do not worry. Wherever you are, whether you're like on the beach, maybe sweating heavily on a commuter train right now, stay cool, everyone. Try and drink lots of water, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Cheers. Cheers.